0: Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We have a lot to cover today, and I am hopeful that we're going to give time for you to discuss it in your group, so we're going to have uh, to move fairly quickly as you're finding Acts chapter 2. If you go ahead and sign that roll sheet at your desk, at your table, rather, and if you're not uh, facing me in any kind of way, if you wouldn't mind turning your seat to face me, that would be awesome. That way I can just see you and you can see me. All right, so we've done some intro material. We've gone through Acts chapter one. We've thought about the seven major themes in the book of Acts that we're going to see over and over again as we learn from this book. And now we've come to the day of Pentecost. So, 50 days after Passover, 50 days after the death of Jesus Christ, uh, we come to uh, see the coming of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. falling on the people of God. And in this story, in this event, really everything kind of changes. As we'll see, the effects ripple into our lives even now. So we're going to have to take this event in two parts. So this week, we're going to see the coming of the Holy Spirit, the immediate response of the crowd, and Peter's sermon proclaiming what is going on. And then next week, in uh, kind of a Pentecost part two, Uh, we'll see the response of the crowd to the message of the gospel and kind of the birth of the early church. We're going to take it in two parts. Let's jump in. You should be in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's pray before we go any further. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of your word. God, we are especially thankful this morning for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you have come to dwell within us, to change us, to empower us and equip us to gird us in the armor of God, to cultivate your fruitfulness in our life and more. So today we pray that you would continue to do your work through the, the good power of your word and illuminate our hearts and minds to understand the truth of your word. Transform us by the renewing of our minds together, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the disciples have been in the upper room of this house praying and waiting for what Luke calls the promise of the Father, that is the Holy Spirit. In a real sense, they ascended from the ground, much like Moses did when he climbed Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord in the book of Exodus. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the claim I'm going to make for us this morning. In verses 1 through 4, the Holy Spirit fulfills Sinai. The Holy Spirit fulfills Sinai. As the disciples are praying, as the disciples are waiting, something happens. What Luke says is a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. It was uh, filling the house, and then fire appeared, or something as of fire, something kind of like fire. Luke uses this language to tell us he doesn't really know exactly what happens, but it seems like this. It was like divided tongues, and it rested on each one of them, and in this event, All of the disciples, the 120 who were there, men and women, the apostles, Mary, brothers and sisters, all of these people who knew and followed Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the immediate evidence of this encounter with the Spirit is the speaking of other tongues or languages according to that same Spirit. Now, there's a lot going on just in these four verses, a lot of imagery, a lot of meaning, and we don't have time to squeeze every little bit out. So here are some highlights. As I said in this claim, we should see this as a fulfillment of God meeting with his representative on Mount Sinai. So back in the book of Exodus, God led his people out of slavery, out of death, out of Egypt, and towards the promised land. But in between the rescue from, from Pharaoh and in the Egyptians and the promised land, they met on the mountain. They met on Mount Sinai. And he led them to that mountain with a pillar of fire and a pillar of wind and cloud after the Exodus. So when we read Acts chapter 2 and we see this fire coming down from heaven and this wind filling the room, we should have this kind of imagery in our minds that this is something like what we have read about before. But if we read carefully, we notice that something's missing. The fire is here, the wind is here, but the smoke and the cloud is not. They feel the air moving. They see the fire burning, but their vision is not obscured by the thick cloud that once shrouded God's presence in places like the mountaintop or later in places like the tabernacle and the temple. Why is that the case? I think Patrick Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, is persuasive on this point. He says, there's no smoke here because they can now behold the one sitting on the throne, unlike in the old covenant. You see, in the book of Exodus, the meeting on Mount Sinai began or inaugurated this old covenant between God and His people bounded by the law. If God's people would obey God's commands, He would bless them in the land. But in Christ, you and I have a new and better covenant. Our relationship to Him is now eternal. It's now rooted in His finished work. It's empowered by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. This is a new and better thing. The fire, too, is something significant. In the Old Testament, and in the Old Covenant especially, God's presence was expressed in fire often in ways that remind us of judgment. So you think about the fire of the sacrifices being burned day after day. I think of places like 1 Kings 18, which is like, I think, one of like young boys in church's favorite stories. It's like Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? just like this showdown on Mount Carmel and God answers with fire. It just licks up all the water that God had placed on, that Elijah had placed on the sacrifice, burns up the sacrifice. God answers with fire, burning it up and sentencing those false prophets to judgment. But as Schreiner continues, the same guy who talked about the smoke, he says, here, the fire is more personal as it divides over each of them, indicating they are now filled with the presence of God individually, and corporately. So the fire of God's presence, which we see as a, a, as a symbol and as an image in the Old Testament over and over again, is less here like the, the fire of God's judgment in 1 Kings 18, and more like his presence in the burning bush of Exodus chapter three. You remember that story, Moses is shepherding his sheep in the wilderness outside of Egypt, And he stumbles upon this bush that is completely consumed with fire, and yet it is not being burned. It's being completely engulfed, but it's not being destroyed. That is now who these disciples are. They are completely overtaken by the presence of God's Spirit seen in these tongues of fire. So these disciples in the upper room receive the promise of the Father. They receive the Holy Spirit, and everything changes. They're now filled with the Spirit, and they are ready to witness. So let's keep going. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans And Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. All right, so in this section, the disciples who have been filled with the promised Holy Spirit are proclaiming what they say are the mighty works of God. And a crowd has formed to hear them and to see what's going on. So we need to set the scene. We're at the Feast of Pentecost, which if you know your Old Testament, maybe you don't. If you do, you know that the Feast of Pentecost is a a harvest feast celebrating God's bountiful provision for his people. So Jews come from all over to Jerusalem to worship and to celebrate that God is the one who provides for them. And at 9 a.m., something like a bomb goes off in Jerusalem. I mean, you think about what is the sound of a mighty rushing wind? That's the sound of an explosion, which doesn't exist in the first century Jerusalem, right? They don't have a concept of explosive devices. And yet they have this, this, this sound that goes off in the city and it bewilders them, this mighty rushing wind explodes in their town and they're all amazed and bewildered. They they gather together as a multitude to see what is going on. They gather and begin to hear not the languages of Jerusalem, which would be Aramaic or maybe even Greek, not the languages that they've probably learned in order to get by in the world that they live in. They gather and begin to hear in their own native tongues Speech, proclaiming the glory and the wonder of God. Their original confusion about what is going on now is compounded. What is going on? These guys are not Egyptians. They're not Arabians. They're not Cretans. They're Galileans. They don't know my language. And yet I'm looking at them and listening to them and they're speaking in a tongue that only I know. This should remind us of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11. So, our second point this morning is that the Holy Spirit redeems Babel. The Holy Spirit redeems Babel. There in Genesis chapter 11, the people gathered together to make a name for themselves. All possessing a common tongue, they desired to build a tower that would ascend into the heavens to proclaim to themselves and to the world they have no need of the God who dwells there because they can reach that same spot in their own strength. But God had told them to do something different. If you go read, God had told the people to spread out, to fill the earth, to continue to extend His image throughout the world. So, in the story of the Tower of Babel, God confused their language. He changed their speech so that they couldn't understand one another. And from that confusion, they expanded out the ends of the earth. They became unable to communicate, and so they separated. Here, though, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God is poured out, the presence of the Spirit bewilders them. The fact that they can understand these Galileans in their own language confuses them. But now, the speakers aren't making a name for themselves. They're declaring the mighty works of God. Notice too who the audience is. Look again at verse 5. Luke says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So you go in any direction on a map from Jerusalem, north, south, east, west, and you can plot a people group from this list of nations in verses 9 through 11. Luke is trying to show you and me That the whole world has come to Jerusalem to worship this God, and this is what's happening. The nations have been gathered to Jerusalem to hear and witness the Spirit of God. What this shows us is that diversity is not a bad thing. The Spirit doesn't force the nations to know one common language. He doesn't call on them to abandon their culture altogether. No, he meets them right where they are and communicates clearly and effectively to them. So the beauty of the diversity of people, of cultures, is something to celebrate. Right? So we may sometimes think about the relationship between the Tower of Babel and Pentecost as though Babel is reversing Babel. Pentecost is reversing Babel. But no, the point that I'm trying to make is that the Holy Spirit redeems Babel at Pentecost. The the diversity of languages, not a bad thing. The, The beauty of different cultures and people groups, not a bad thing. In fact, it's something to celebrate. It's why in Revelation 21, 26, as God's word talks about what the new creation will be like, it says, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Which means there's something about a specific people group that is a kind of beautiful, honorable glory that is unique to them. So no matter what your background is or where you're from or who you meet in your life, where they come from, there's something glorious and beautiful about that diversity that exists. Something to be celebrated, not lamented. So as we think about missions then, as we think about proclaiming the gospel, we recognize that in the old covenant, Among Jews who lived in Israel, the mission strategy was come and see, come and see, come to Jerusalem, come to the temple, come be a Jew like me, take on our culture, worship in this particular temple. But now in the new covenant, empowered by the spirit, the witness strategy shifts from come and see to go and tell. Go to the nations. Make disciples of all nations, Jesus says. Bear witness to what God has done. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Proclaim that God is to be worshipped from every people, from every tribe, in every tongue. Again, Babel is not undone. It's not reversed. It's redeemed. And yet, the crowd is still confused. (laughs) They clearly see that something miraculous is going on, and yet they need to be told. They need an explanation. They need an answer to the question, what do these things mean? In other words, they need a word from God. But some are mocking, right? Even from the very beginning, there are those who scoff at the work of God. So, Peter will rise to speak. We're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at his sermon in three sections. So, let's read the first, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, in our third section this morning, the Holy Spirit has fulfilled Sinai He's redeemed Babel. And now in this sermon by Peter, the Holy Spirit magnifies Christ. The Spirit's work in the world is always connected to magnifying Jesus, to shining a light on Jesus. It is clear if you have read Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, or if you've been familiar with the Gospels, that Peter is obviously a changed man. He is not the same that he once was. Listen to another Bible scholar's comment here. It'll be on the screen. Before, he could not stand up to the high priest Caiaphas' servant girl. Now, he stands up to the entire world. Before, he struck Malchus with the physical sword. Now, he strikes the entire world with the spiritual sword, with God's word is this not the work of God and the power of the Holy Spirit? So so Peter has obviously been radically changed by the Spirit of God. And his first point that he'll make in his sermon from Joel 2, 28 through 32, is that they are innocent and the Spirit has been poured out. So there's an accusation that these guys are crazy. It's 9 a.m., they're drunk, they're babbling. And Peter goes, no, no, no. That's not what's happening. We're not drunk as you suppose. What you're seeing right now is written about in the prophet Joel. So he uses Joel 2, 28 through 32 to show the crowd, we proclaimers of God's wonders and work are innocent. We are not guilty of any sin. We're bearing witness. Men and women before you are here telling you, as we will tell the whole world, that the Spirit has come. And Joel says, and Peter is confirming, the way that we know the Spirit has come is because we're hearing prophecy. Now that's a hotly debated word, a hotly debated topic. And we don't have time to get surgical on it this morning. But here's a great definition from a biblical scholar, um, R. Blaylock. I'm just going to give you, it's these five things. I, I wish I would have put them on the screen, but you should have to listen to me carefully and go back and listen after once we put this up. So what is prophecy in the New Testament? First, it is a miraculous act of intelligible communication. So it's, it's intelligible communication. I'm telling you something that you understand, and it's miraculous information. It's, it's information I should not know naturally. Okay, that's number one. Number two, it is rooted in spontaneous divine revelation. So where I received this word from is from God. And I received it immediately. Number three, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the words that I'm communicating are words that I received from the Spirit, which number four, results in words that can be attributed to any and all members of the Godhead. So I can say, Jesus is showing me, or the Father has revealed to me, and there be kind of a parenthesis, by the Spirit, this. Which number five, must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding and true. Now we don't have time to get into whether or not this kind of prophecy continues to exist after the time of the apostles and after the time of the completion of our Bible, which is God's prophetic word to us. But suffice to say, in this event, at this moment, it is apparent That God's Spirit is empowering believers, men and women, to proclaim miraculous words to those who would hear in a way that is also miraculous. So Peter is saying, what you are witnessing right now is none other than what was promised by Joel. God gave him these words to prophesy. You are hearing its fulfillment right now. But here's his second point as we continue Peter's sermon. Jesus Christ has been resurrected. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses so what peter is saying to this crowd is we are innocent of any charge of sin because we have been recipients of the promised holy spirit and what he has proclaimed through us to you is this. Jesus is the Christ and you killed him. You murdered the son of God. You delivered Jesus up to the hands of lawless men. And so while we are innocent, you are guilty. Now their guilt runs concurrently or at the same line as verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You remember our first theme, God the Father has orchestrated all things to come to pass. And Peter says in the same breath, God the Father is sovereign over the death of Christ himself. And you are guilty and responsible. He feels no tension between those two truths. You, the crowd who have heard and witnessed these things, you are guilty for your handing up Christ to be killed. And God the Father is completely in control. He uses Psalm 16 to show that David in some way, by the inspiration of the Spirit, spoke of more than just himself. I mean, look at verse 31. This is an insane verse. I mean, just crazy verse. In Psalm 16, David is writing about himself. He's on the run from people who want to kill him. And he's crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You won't let me see corruption. You won't let me die. You're going to save me and preserve me because you love me and because I'm yours. He's, he's leaning into God's faithfulness to hold him and preserve him from his enemies. And Peter says, Brothers, in verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So, So Peter is saying, whatever David was talking about, there's more to the story. Because while David in that immediate instance was preserved from death, he still died. He still was buried. He still does stay in this Tomb. so verse thirty one or verse thirty being therefore a prophet knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he that is David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ so what Peter is saying is is to this crowd of Jews, both proselytes and Jews by birth, who have come from all the nations to Jerusalem to worship God, to worship the Lord of the scriptures. Hey, that Psalm that you probably memorized when you were a little boy or a little girl, Psalm 16 about David and his soul not being abandoned to Hades. What if I told you that that's not really ultimately about David? Peter is saying, actually, My friends, that text is about Jesus and it's about him raising from the dead, him not being abandoned to death. Jesus was the one who was not abandoned to Hades. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He has been raised. So here's the point. The one that you killed conquered death and we are witnesses of these things. We've seen him. We just spent the last 40 days with him. So that Jesus that you killed, that you crucified, that you murdered, did not stay dead. Here's his final point, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the Spirit has been poured out. Christ has been raised. And last, verse 33 through 36, Christ has been exalted Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He was exalted to the right hand of God the Father and now has sent us the promise of the Holy Spirit. David goes to Psalm 110. It's the most quoted scripture. It's the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament to show the crowd that the first Lord, I mean, look at it with me in verse 34. The Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord is God the Father. The second Lord is Jesus Christ. And he, Jesus, now sits enthroned in heaven. This Jesus, whom you crucified, rose from the dead, exalted himself by the Father, by the Spirit to heaven, now has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the Father has promised him, I will make your enemies your footstool. So this Jesus whom you have killed, Peter says, conquered death, ascended to heaven, received authority, received a throne, and his justice will be poured out. His enemies will be defeated and the crowd stands condemned. They are guilty and so are we. We, like them, are sinners in great need of a savior. And the good news of the gospel is what we'll spend more time on next week. That is, if we repent of our sin and come to Jesus in faith, the king of kings will forgive us our sins. And he will no longer be a king who pours out his judgment on us. He will be the king who sits us with him in the heavenly places and makes us his own. What I hope you see in this text is that the Old Testament is vitally important to understand. And that this whole book from Genesis to Revelation is a Christian book. It is God's book to God's people. That Jesus really has conquered death. He really does have all authority in heaven on earth. And the Spirit bears witness to that truth. We're witnesses that Jesus is alive, that he rules and he reigns. And in our sin, we all stand condemned. You might think if we were in those crowds in the first century, we would have been better. We would not. We would have been with all the rest of the crowd yelling at those who have the authority that we do not looking at Pilate and saying, crucify him, crucify him. So I want us to pray and I want us to consider, who is this Jesus? I want us to consider the question that the crowd asks at the beginning. What does this mean? What does this mean for us as followers of Jesus who now have that same Holy Spirit? What does that mean for maybe some of us in this room who if we're honest, have not yet surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, Who have not yet turned from our sin. What is our fate if we stay in that sin?